Amen. Thank you, Brendan, for reading the Word of God. Let that, let that sink in. It's the Word of God. We have to see it as that because if we don't, then we'll get caught up in it just being words or a story that we've heard before. If we see it as the Word of God, we know it's true. And it's important that we see it as truth because truth changes things. Truth gives life. Truth brings freedom. And if this story is true, then it means something for us. And if if we hold the Bible as the foundation of who we are as believers, then it means something for us today and as we go forward as a church. And so we're going to look at this passage as we do when we preach sermons. We're going to walk through it and we're going to look at different things that could be, that may need to be brought out, but also we're going to look at how it applies to us today. And I want to do so similar to how I, I usually do, but I really want us to, to feel the context. I really want us to understand what's going on here. And so I'm going to probably, for more than some, if, if you've not been with us often, give more detail than you may think is necessary. But I really want us to see it and feel it and know it's true. Because when we look at the Bible, it happened in, in a different land, on the other side of the world, in a different time period, far different than us. It's so hard for us to really grasp significance in things. And so we're just going to walk through the text and we're going to see what's there. And then hopefully as He has typically been faithful to do, the Holy Spirit will bring to life in us what we need to see in this very familiar story. In fact, it's, it's probably among, if not the most famous miracle of Jesus, that He walked on water. It's not only known well, but it's, it's mocked often that a man could walk on water. And, and it's seen as a myth that a man could walk on water. And so we're going to Look at it like we did last week when we talked about the feeding of the 5,000, also a famous story that can be doubted easily. Uh, But let's remember where we were then. So last week we walked through this passage just before this one of Jesus and his 12 disciples before this massive crowd of people. 5,000 men is what it says, so 20 plus people. So there could be kids and women and and the slaves or the workers or the, the homeless, the, the crippled, the needy. It's just a massive group of people, if you can picture it in your head, hungry for food. And Jesus is providing that food for them with five loaves of bread and two fish. Crazy miracle. What you don't know is, or you may not know, is that this group of people are from these regions full of what, what we call zealots. They're political zealots. They want, they're Jews that want to overthrow Rome. And so they form this party. They form this group and some of Jesus' disciples, specifically Peter, they're a part of that. And so they, they did, they're waiting their Messiah, but they're imagining the Messiah to be this coming king that would rule and overwhelm Rome with his own power. And so they've seen this demonstrated now through Jesus. And this is different than other miracles because he's healed the sick and he's, he's raised the dead and he's done these individual things. But now this miracle has been done for a mass of people in a way that was unlike his others through the hands of the disciples. And so it's unique in that way, but it also has stirred something up in this group of people. And Mark doesn't really give us a good picture of that, uh, but John also tells this story, and he says in, in John six fifteen they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. So if you can feel that in the crowd, this stirring up, this excitement among the people, that our king is finally here. 
This, this group of people who feel oppressed by the Roman government. They feel oppressed by having to pay taxes they shouldn't have to pay and, and being forced into uh, certain customs that they're, they're not raised to. It's not in their tradition. And, and they see their king. They see what Jesus has to offer. He can heal the sick. He can raise the dead. He can open the eyes of the blind. And now we see he can provide for the masses. This is our king. And the, the excitement is stirring and, and something interesting happens. Jesus makes his disciples leave. And so the people are, are trying to, by force, make him king. And Jesus looks at his disciples and makes them leave. So this, this is the first century prosperity gospel in the flesh. They don't want Jesus as Lord. They want him as ruler. They want what he can offer. He can give me healing and he can give me food. This is the guy we want. It, it, it's the very thing that lost so many people in the end. Because eventually, everyone drifted off. Everyone deserted Jesus. Everyone gave up on him because he wasn't giving them what they wanted. Except for the twelve. The twelve stuck around. Yeah, they had a little bit of a weak moment when they took him to crucify him. But they were still there. They rallied together. And they became what is the church today. And so there's something unique about these twelve. And I think it has to do with the fact that he made them leave. But it may also have to do with something that's about to happen in this book of Mark. So Mark chapter 6, uh, we see in verse 52, just to jump to the middle there. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Talking about the 12 disciples. So, so why would it be that so many would give up on Jesus except for the 12? Well, it wasn't because of this feeding. Because it says they didn't even understand the loaves. They didn't understand the, the mystery behind the bread. In fact, their hearts were hardened towards it. So perhaps it's something else. Verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. So typical, typical of Mark, there's this urgency. Immediately, he uses that word a lot. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples leave. And this, and this is written in Greek, so the, the, the verbiage here, the making them leave, is something that's very extreme. It's almost like he's forcing them onto the boat. He's pushing them onto their boat to leave. But he doesn't do it physically. In fact, it's more of a, a compulsion. He's compelling them to do it by intimidation. He's, he's saying, get out of here. So Jesus, you're still there with me. In this scene, mass of people that they just fed. The sun was setting. People were hungry. They fed on the disciples, did all this work. Tons of food left over. The crowd's getting excited. And Jesus says, leave. He makes them leave. If, I, if it were me, I would want the disciples' help. That's 24 other hands to calm the crowd down and send them away. It's 12 other mouths that can give some orders to spread. 20,000 people need some direction. I wouldn't want to handle that on my own. So it's peculiar to me that he would make them leave and in such an urgent way. But Jesus, as always, knows something that we don't know. He knows his disciples are very susceptible to what's going on in this crowd. He knows that they don't get it yet. In fact, verse 52, remember, shows us they don't get it yet. He knows if they stick around, they'll catch this contagion that's spreading through the crowd, this energy that's bubbling up in everyone. They found their king and they'll become zealous along with the crowd and he'll lose them. 
because they don't get it. And so the disciples were reluctant, but they obey and they get on the boat and they're dismissed from the crowd. Verse 46. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. So Jesus dismisses the crowd. Eventually, I don't know how long it takes. I assume hours he or he could just make it happen. He doesn't really give us anything. So he dismisses the crowd and then he goes up to the mountain to pray. When we see Jesus pray in scripture, it's not very often, but he, we know he prays often. He's in constant communion with God the Father. They're one. So this, this idea of the Trinity that can sometimes be confusing. God the Father, Son, and Spirit are one God, one in essence. We, we could say he is one God, not they. Because they're three persons, but he is one God. And so Jesus in the flesh is God. He's fully the Lord. And in every way, he is in unity with the Father. And the Spirit who empowers him to all that he is. And so Jesus praying is kind of an interesting thought. But more than just an example, he pleads with the Father for his church. He pleads with the Father for strength. Just as we should plead with the Father for for the church and for the lost to become part of the church. That we could celebrate as we did this morning with baptism into this family forever. And so Jesus, no doubt, is praying for his church. It doesn't tell us specifically what he prays, but he's praying for his church. He's praying for strength. And I think it's likely because of what's just occurred. This massive crowd seeking to make him king when he knows and he alone knows the actuality of his faith. He knows it's not to be done in this way. So he sends the disciples off and he pulls away the solitude to pray, to, to make war against the flesh. Jesus was tempted in every way that we were. Or that we are. And so Jesus is, is reaffirming the sign that he's divine calling to be a servant king and not a king to rule with an iron fist. Not now. And so he draws away in solitude because one day he's going to give himself to the very enemy this group of people seek to overcome to be put to death. And you see, Jesus knows the death needs to happen to fight this fight is not against the flesh, but it's against the principalities is against the spirit. And so to put death itself to death, Jesus has to die. And this very idea is what Paul writes in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 8. It's an instruction to the church. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is, this is a heavy calling on us. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have the mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus in our story today is God. He could very easily rule over Rome. It would, it would be simple for him to take out an entire army. He could do whatever he wants. He rules as God. So these people longing to by force make him king is no different than Satan in the wilderness after his baptism tempting him. Saying, look, you can rule all of this. But there's a plan in place and it's a necessity for Christ to die and bear the wrath of God for the sin that all of these people are guilty of. 
Freeing them physically would do not enough. Freeing them, delivering them from the oppression of Rome is not enough. Jesus in our story, though he is God, takes on the flesh. He takes on the the personhood of man. He is fully God and he becomes miraculously and one of the most confusing things to me in all of scripture. He becomes incarnate. In fact, he's God with us. And he says, no, get out of here, disciples. Crowd, leave. And he goes to solitude and he prays. And and you may ask, well, what good is a king if he's killed by the enemy? Well, fortunately, the cross isn't the end. Verse 9 of Philippians 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So what is this name bestowed on him? Yes, we we sing of power in the name of Jesus. We talk about the name of Jesus, and it's, it's a holy name. We cherish the name, but this name bestowed on Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord. He is Yahweh. He is king of all kings. He doesn't need them to make him king because he is the king. It's more than than a deliverance from a political oppression. He's offering them deliverance from sin that condemns them to hell forever. They need Jesus to be Lord more than they need him to be king of the Jews. And he knows that, so he draws away and he asks his father for strength and he prays for his church. He prays for these disciples that he sent away that God would open their minds to truth. They would see what's real and he could present himself as Lord and they would worship him as Lord. The masses have missed it. And right now the disciples have missed it. It's not about overruling Rome. It's about being the king of all kings. Paul Washer says about this Philippians passage that it's, it's every knee bows and every tongue confess. So how many is that? It's all of them. It's every mouth will confess Jesus is Lord. So every member of that crowd, the 20,000 plus, every human being that's ever breathed a breath and everyone that hasn't, everyone that's ever existed in all of creation and everyone to come will confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and they will bow at his feet because he's the king of kings. So here's the horrifying truth. Some will bow grateful that God has saved because on this side of their death they made that, that, made that understanding clear. The Holy Spirit has brought to life something in them. They see Jesus as Lord and they worship him with life here and now. And they'll bow in gratitude and they'll go with God to worship him forever and eternity. And billions will not. But they'll still confess and they'll still bow. But they'll bow because God's going to break their legs with the rod of correction. They'll be forced to their face before they're cast into hell for eternity. I'm not trying to make it scarier than it is because I can't. This is a reality. As, As real as we are right now, breathing in this room... You can feel this moment. Billions of people will go to hell forever because they missed it. They've not seen Jesus as Lord. And so now you can feel Jesus on this mountaintop praying and pleading with the Father. Let them see that I'm Lord. They missed it. They're trying to make me king. They want me to overrule Rome and they're missing it. 
as we should be pleading with the Father, save the lost, that we would have many more that get baptized in this church and the churches that aren't here across this world for, for all the, the life that we have left. God, save the lost. Let your word go forth. Let, let us stand as the body of Christ, the hands and feet of our Lord, and bring the gospel because there's billions without it. And so Jesus is praying. Meanwhile, as Jesus prays for the kingdom, his disciples find themselves in a bit of a predicament out at sea. Verse 47. Back to Mark. And evening came and the boat was out on the sea. And he was alone on the land. Jesus was alone on the land. And he saw. So we don't know physically if he saw them or supernaturally he saw them. But he saw that they were making headway painfully. Literally, this is translated, suffering at the oars. For the wind was against them. So the kingdom of God is being established on the earth. And as it stands right now, they fit in one boat. The entire kingdom of God is not very wonderful right now, fits in one boat, and it's a bunch of men who doubt and miss it. And they're bobbing up and down on the waves of the Sea of Galilee, and, and they're, they're, it says that they're painfully making headway. They're suffering at the oars. These men weren't necessary, necessarily in danger of capsizing like they were in the storm that we've read before, where Jesus calms the storm. It's not necessarily true that they're fearing their death in this moment, but certainly they're exhausted they're fighting the winds. They're trying to get where Jesus told them to go. And in, uh, in John's version of this, it says that they're out at sea, miles from where they should be. And in Matthew, he says, they were a long way off from land, beaten by the waves, which shouldn't be the case because Jesus sent them to Bethsaida, which is just up the shore. So remember, they can just travel along the shore to get where they're going. Somehow they end up way at sea. They've drifted off. You may recall that the Sea of Galilee from, from the sermon before, that the Sea of Galilee is, is in a bit of a bowl. It's, it's well below sea level and there's mountains on either side. And so the winds pick up, especially at night, and they come across the sea. And storms come up frequently and quickly. And, and so the disciples find themselves caught in one. And the, the sails are no doubt lowered and they're just rolling, trying to get to where they're going. And they're out there for hours trying to get to where they're going. Many of these men are fishermen, born and raised on the sea. And so they should know these waves well. They should know how to fight well, yet they're trapped. And they're painfully making headway. This, this word painfully, can be, it's used often to mean torture. There's this suffering that they're enduring. They're fighting against the waves and it's causing anguish. And they're probably soaking wet and and worried that they're not going to be able to get where they can go and, and they're fighting and fighting and taking turns and rowing for hours upon hours and they're alone. You see, they have faith that Jesus can calm the storm because they've seen him do it. Only this is different because he's not there. He's on shore. And they may not be afraid like they once were. Remember that fear was in them when Jesus was asleep in the boat and they thought they were going to die. And they woke him and say, do you not care about us? And he calms the storm. And immediately the waves ceased and the wind stopped. And they were more afraid 
than they were before. Because the fear of God was in them that a man, a rabbi to them, could just tell the storm to stop and it would. Only now, he's not there. So Jesus is not only on the shore, he's actually in the mountains praying and, and he can see them in their distress. So if you want, you can envision him looking out on the sea, the moonlight, the waves bouncing up and down, a little speck on the horizon. But if you've ever looked at the ocean at night, it's kind of hard to see. So what I, I see more here is that Jesus supernaturally knows where they are. He sees them with the eyes of his spirit. He, can, he knows their predicament. He knows their distress. He knows their need. And, and let's not miss this. Why are they where they are? They obeyed him. Why are they suffering at sea, fighting the waves and the wind? Because they did what Jesus told them to do. Because of their obedience, they're suffering. And let's see the focal point of this passage. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and meant to pass them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got to them in the boat with he got in the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So Mark is writing to a Roman audience. And so he uses terminology here that Romans would understand. Jews would refer to it as the fourth, the fourth watch of the night. But, but the Romans broke their nights up into four watches, three-hour watches. So we know this time period, the fourth watch is from 3 to 6 a.m. So that gives us some framework for how long the disciples have been out there. So if they fed the multitudes when the sun was setting, I would say it takes a while to feed 20,000 people with 12 guys. So some time has passed. So let's even give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say they left at midnight. Even if they were to leave the shore at midnight, they've been out there three to six hours. But I don't even think they left at midnight. It's probably closer to eight or ten. So they've been out there for hours, bobbing up and down, fighting the winds and the waves, and it's exhausting and draining. And it says they were tormented, they were tortured, they're suffering, trying to get where they were going. And something amazing happens. Very familiar, but don't let that ruin it for you. Jesus walks on water and he comes to them in their distress. This isn't an optical illusion. It's not Chris Angel walking on water. This is Jesus walking on water. It's not, there's no buried sandbar. There's not stones that he's hopping from stone to stone. There's no, there's no, way, around, there's no way around this translation. It says he was walking on the water. The word used has to be on or upon, so you can pick, upon or on, whichever one you want to choose. He's on top of the surface of the water. It's miraculous or it's a myth. Those are your options. Either we believe it's real, not just some story we heard when we were kids. We believe it really happened or we dismiss it as a myth altogether. Now, I'm going to choose to believe it's real because it has incredible implications as to who my God is and that he would come to me in, in distress. 
Sure, feeding the 5,000 plus, that the 20,000, should be enough to convince the disciples that he is God, he, he is Lord, but it's not. Verse 52 tells us they understand, they don't understand the loaves and their hearts were hardened. They saw him break the bread and feed the 5,000, but they didn't see that he was the bread of life. They saw him demonstrate great power, but they're missing the fact that Jesus himself is great power. They, they know that he's a great teacher and, and they know that he can rule and he can reign, but they don't see he's the king of all kings. They knew that he was sent from God, but they're missing that he himself is God. And so let's not make the same mistake. And in fact, the disciples seeing Jesus walk on water can, can reflect on what they were taught in their upbringing. They can reflect on the Old Testament because this is prophecy fulfillment in the flesh. Psalm 7, 77, 19 says, speaking of the Lord, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Isaiah 43, 16, thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters? Perhaps more significant, especially including from Mark he meant to pass them by, which we'll talk about in a minute. Job 9, verses 8 and 11 says, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled on the waves of the sea? Behold, he passed by me, and I see him not. He moved on, he moves on, but I do not perceive him. Mark actually uses the Greek translation of that very passage, trampled on the waves and passed by, to write what he wrote. He's intentionally pointing to the prophecy being fulfilled that Jesus is the very same Yahweh that Jerusalem has always worshipped. He's the very same Yahweh that Israel worships as God. This is the Lord. Exodus 33, we, we see this idea of passing by. Jesus does, or God does for Moses, which could be Jesus. We'll talk about it later. We won't really. We're talking about it over lunch one day. It's a big fancy word. I'd love to share it with you. All right, Exodus 33, 19 says, And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. So what's the saying? Saying God does what he wants. And for Moses, he's willing to pass by. Because if, he, if Moses were to see God fully, he would die because God's too holy for Moses. So it's, so it's Jesus who brings this to the flesh. It's Jesus who puts on the human body. It's God coming before men, not to shield our eyes from him, but to allow us to see him in the flesh. So is it a miracle or is it a myth? Surely no man can walk on water, right? Yes, you should be saying yes. I've tried. You cannot do it. I've tried a lot, actually. I've been trying to go really slow. Doesn't work. Every time it fails. I'll keep trying just in case, but I'm telling you, you can't do it. It's impossible. So surely he's not just a man. But Jesus is doing more than just doing a miracle. It is a miracle, but he's doing more than a miracle. He is fulfilling a prophecy. He's making a profound statement. I am the Lord. I'm what you're missing. Cross-reference, Exodus, Job, Psalm, Isaiah. Surely all this is stirring up in the minds of good Jewish boys in this boat. But before they can even 
do that, they're freaking out because it's a ghost. They're afraid because they think they see a ghost. But it's not a ghost. It's the Lord of all creation. And he says, it is me, which is I am. The very name Yahweh gives to Moses. I am. Don't be afraid. He's the Lord of all creation. His ways are higher than the ways of men. That's why he can do what he's doing. No man can walk on water. He is beyond compare. No man compares to him. He has arrayed the heavens in splendor. He, he's the one who puts the sea in its place and he allows the waves to billow up and down. He has control over all things. He does as he pleases. He demonstrates grace when he wants to. He shows mercy when he wants to. From his mouth, the stars were put in their place. He's laid the foundations of the world. He can move mountains if he wishes because he's put them in his place. He can shake the earth. He can blot out the sun and he can walk on water because he's the Lord. And and more than all of that, he can overcome death and accomplish for these 12 and for billions to come all that we would ever need. Jesus is offering something more than the revelation of God to Moses because he's Emmanuel, God with us. It says he, he, went, he meant to pass them by. When I first read that, I was like, what do you mean he meant to pass them by? He's going to pass them up? It's kind of rude. But he's not, it's not saying it like that. Instead, he's intending to go near to where they are. He, he meant to pass them by. He meant to go by where they are. He's coming alongside them so that they can see him and see that he's Lord. But it also is making reference to that passage of Job where God, or passage in Job and the passage in Exodus where God passes by so that we know he's Lord. But in a, in a more significant way, he's making what's mysterious present. He's making what's invisible visible. He's making what's unattainable attainable. He comes to them. But when they saw them, they thought he was a ghost. Now these are grown men in a boat. And they were crying out. You can't use harsher words there. They're, they're afraid for their lives. They're yelling, screaming like schoolgirls, afraid of a ghost. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking if I'm Matthew, the tax collector, and I'm in a boat with some masculine fishermen, and they're screaming like girls... I'm going to be a little bit nervous. I just, I want you to feel it. They're terrified. But Jesus doesn't leave them to linger in that fear. He says, it says immediately, he spoke to them, take heart. I am, take heart. It is me. It is I. And then he says a phrase that's used a hundred plus times throughout scripture. Do not be afraid. A God that would comfort us if they weren't on Jesus' team if they're not a part of the kingdom God wouldn't be for them and they have every reason to be terrified but because Jesus is for them he says don't be afraid and he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased he didn't have to say anything this time and, and they were utterly astounded that is they were beyond themselves in amazement 
Even more, more literal, they were, they were feeling like they were going insane. They, they were beside themselves because of what just happened. And they should be. And you may be thinking, there's something missing. And you'd be right. Totally left out of Mark's telling of this story is Peter's part. If you've heard this story before, there is one other man that walks on water. Peter, the crazy one. The one that had enough faith to, to step out of the boat. Now, I, I thought about going into Matthew's telling of it and, and giving that picture of Peter because I think it's very significant, this, this idea that a man, a regular man, a sinner like us, would have the faith to step out of a boat and walk to Jesus, and then he gets scared, and he begins to sink, and Jesus reaches out and he rescues him, pulls him from the water, and then does what he does so well. Why did you stop believing you have little faith. But I think Peter left this out not because he was embarrassed that he sank. I think, because remember, Peter is working with Mark to write this gospel. That's why I say Peter. I think that Peter wanted this left out. And this is totally uh, speculation, but I think he wanted it left out as a humble gesture because he wants Jesus to be exalted. He wants God to be glorified. He wants the point to be the point. Jesus is Lord. And if, this, if that part was in there, like if I was preaching through Matthew right now, I would focus a lot on Peter. But I'm going to stay true to Mark and say, look, Jesus has made himself known as Lord. Yes, we should have faith to run to him like Peter did. We should have faith to believe and fix our eyes on Jesus and not take our eyes off and look at the waves around us. But that's for another sermon, maybe in 20 years when we go through Matthew. I don't know if it'll take that long. But... I do want to draw this from Matthew because the end of this is, is very significant. Matthew 14, verse 32 and 33. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Something significant just happened for these 12 guys. Well, 11. Judas. Talk about him some other time. Something clicked. Something flipped around from what they just saw with the feeding of a mass of people. It wasn't enough to, to demonstrate this to them. Something changed in them. And from this point on, you'll see in this ministry, the 12 are far more committed to this Jesus. Before, they were following it faithfully. This is our rabbi. He's a good teacher. He's performing these miracles. He needs our help. That's what all good Jewish people do. And he was different than these other guys. He was drawing a crowd. He was reaching out to those no one was reaching out to. He was taking in disciples that no one and no true rabbi would take in. And so he was significant already, but something changed. The power that he demonstrated was manifest in them. They saw this. He is the power. The God sin that he was changed in them. They see he is Lord. And so they bow in this boat, astounded beside themselves. According to Matthew, they worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. This is a defining moment. They believed, finally. Though they'll, they'll doubt and make many mistakes to come, they believe. And they move to right action. When we believe, we worship. And so Mark then goes on to give us basically a summary of the rest of the mission in Galilee. Verse 53 when he, when he, oh, sorry, when they had crossed over, now this is kind of interesting. It doesn't give us any idea of how they got there and where, and where they end up, where they came to. And uh, 
I told Brendan how to pronounce this. I don't remember what he said, so I'm just going to say it how I'm going to say it. Uh, get, or Gennesaret, so that's how it's said. If you remember how he said it, uh, Gennesaret. I like Brendan a lot. That's why I did that. I needed, I need someone to call me out more in life. So I'm just going to let this moment linger. <laughs> totally unnecessary. Why am I doing that to him? Okay. Back to the passage. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. So what's interesting is this isn't at all where Jesus sent them. In fact, if you look at a map, it's not even really that close. And it's on the other side of the Galilee is where Jordan River ends. It flows north. So it ends there and they're on the other side of it. So something miraculous had to happen or Mark is sandwiching some stories together here. Either way, they're somewhere else. They moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. And they ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to where, or wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, and countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. That may sound familiar. Even the fringe of his garment can heal. And as many as touched it were made well. And this phrase made well could, could mean we're saved. This shows the need of the people. It's a chaotic need. They're swarming about, where's Jesus? Let's find him. Let's bring all the sick people to him. Let's find our healing. And it shows great compassion of Jesus to continue to reach out, to continue to heal, to continue to care for these people who miss it. They're still missing it. He's continuing to provide for them. Though they would worship him for what he can give them and not for who he is, he continues to give with great compassion and great power. And this is the lesson here. The priority is for the people. Jesus is for the people. And as always, he makes time for them. And all that sought him found their healing. And so this is a beautiful wrap-up, this beautiful summary to all that we've been in so far is Jesus' ministry around Capernaum and, and around Galilee. And, and Mark is wrapping it up with this significant change that happens in these 12. So what's the application for us? Well, do you trust Jesus as Lord? We see him as a savior, perhaps, a provider, like we talked about last week. But he, does he rule your life? Is he Lord of all creation? Do you worship him with your breath? Do you worship him with how you plan? Do you worship him in how you attend a worship gathering? Or do we go through the motions? Are we missing it? Is he just providing what we want? Did you accept a life as a Christian because it gives you some status with people? Did you accept a life as a Christian because you feel like if you get Jesus, then you'll get healthy, like many people in this time did? Or if you get Jesus, then you'll get wealthy, like many people in this time did. Because the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that's so widely, widely proclaimed is not the true gospel. It's not that we get stuff when we get Jesus. It's that we get Jesus. He is Lord. He is King. He is all that we need. So when we're in a boat and the waves are high and the wind is blowing and we're being tormented by life around us, Jesus shows up and he calms the sea. But even if he doesn't, we worship him. 
The disciples failed to do that because they had yet believed he was Lord. They'd yet to see that he is king of all kings. In fact, it's likely they were having thoughts like, why did he send us out here? Why would he do this to us? Because remember, they're just obeying. Unlike the storm that we find Jonah in in the Old Testament, where Jonah was in a storm because of his disobedience, they're in a storm because of their obedience. Apparently, we need to think before we obey. In fact, later in his ministry, Jesus will say things very similar to this. Count up the cost. Pick up your cross. If you're going to follow me, you must die to yourself daily. Bury the old you and let the dead bury the dead. There's no time for that. Follow me. Love me most. Love me so much that in comparison, you would hate everything else. The life you now live is no longer your life to live for you. You live for me. This is Jesus' call to us. So let us count up this cost. Let us see the weight of responsibility. Let us see that this obedience to what he's called us to could very well lead us to some suffering. And likely will lead us to suffering. Just imagine if the disciples had disobeyed. Where would they be? On the shore. Safe. Not suffering. Eating their baskets full of fish and bread. Hanging out with the people. Celebrating our king is here. Caught up in in the riots. Let's overtake Rome. And lost forever. Condemned to hell. Because like the masses, they would have missed it. If not for the suffering in the boat. Because of their obedience. They would have missed it. There's a valuable lesson here. That consider the struggle of the, the athletes in the Olympics right now. Especially like America's great, awesome, we're leading the medals, tons of gold, go Michael Phelps, whatever. I'm a patriotic. I don't know why I'm making it sound like I'm not. Go America. I'm pro-America. Alright. But consider the countries that don't win a lot of medals. Those those people who devote their lives because they want to win maybe the first medal for their country. And they devote their lives to this. Sure, Americans train, they train hard. And I, and I give them credit where, they, where it's deserved. I could not do anything they're doing. But consider these people in countries where they don't have a lot of resources to train. And they're, they're working hard. They devote all that they have, all the energy. They wake up, they, they prepare, they go to sleep to wake up and prepare. This is their life. So that they can win a medal for their country. The suffering and the sacrifice that takes. And let's say they do it. Gold medal. Imagine, after all of that sacrifice and suffering, imagine the feeling of stepping up on that podium and feeling the weight of that medal hang around your neck and seeing your flag above the other flags and your anthem blared over the sound system. How great the reward. The sacrifice being worth it. Now, it's totally fleeting in comparison to the reward we get in Christ, but it's significant to this individual who's given their life to this. Now, maybe you don't resonate with, with athletics, but let's say baseball, because it's more likely there's more baseball players than Olympians in here. Say baseball. 
You're going to get strikes if you play baseball. You're going to strike out sometimes. But it's totally worth that feeling of that ball hitting the bat just right. And it doesn't even hurt. It's so amazing. I can't even explain it. And just watching it sail over the fence effortlessly. All the strikeouts are nothing compared to the feeling of watching that home run. Or if you play golf, you get about 50 million bad hits. And that one good hit sails perfectly where you want it to. Feels so good. Now I know sports analogies often miss it. So let's say you're climbing a mountain. You're going to scrape your knee. You're going to fall down. You're going to sweat. You're going to get worn out. You're going to need to take breaks, drink lots of water, stay hydrated. Air's going to get thinner. It's going to get harder to breathe. But when you reach the summit, the feeling of accomplishment is second to the view. Seeing. As far as your eyes can see, God's glorious creation, feeling how small you are in comparison to the bigness of these mountains. The effort was totally worth it. You can put a band-aid on a scra- scraped knee. Or maybe marriage, the struggle of learning how to communicate with your spouse, dealing with the difficulties of realizing how selfish you are, Having to die to yourself, sacrifice to love well, or parenthood. Not just the, the labor pains of giving birth, all the mothers in the room, but raising a child that fights against you, though you give it all the love you can, and to your face rebel. The pain of that. But both marriage and parenthood, the joys far outweigh the pain. The joy of being united with someone in such a significant way in marriage. Closer to my wife than I am with any human being in the world. The joy to know that she is there for me. She loves me despite my failures. is totally worth the struggle. And the joy of holding my son in the moments where he hugs me. Totally worth all the rebellion. And I know that it's not ideal. Marriage and, and parenting is not ideal for, for everyone. Some parenting, some marriages don't get those joys. I know that's the case. But don't miss the picture we're getting here. Nothing worth having comes without suffering. And the things worth having the most require the most suffering and sacrifice. There will be labor pain before there's joy. There will be darkness before there's light. The storm will rage on before Jesus quiets the storm. I don't want you to buy into this lie that it's going to be easy. Because you'll miss Jesus as Lord if you try to take the easy, comfortable route. The disciples don't know that he's on his way. They're just fighting and suffering and thinking We obeyed him. Why are we here? Why are we suffering? In a very similar way, perhaps you've had the same thoughts. Jesus, I'm obeying you. I'm following you. I've given you my life already. What's up with the suffering? Why is it so difficult? Why does it hurt? Why can't you take this away from me? I know I'm not alone in this. From the anxieties I deal with daily to the deep, Scars I feel in my soul because of the many things I've experienced in my life. Pain is real, despite the fact that I belong to Jesus. Let's just get real. Let's be honest about that. 
The suffering is real. We cannot buy into the pain being gone at the moment of our salvation because it's not. It's a myth. This story itself embodies the antithesis of health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. There will be suffering, but Jesus is still Lord. And as he walks towards us with every step, the the storm is calmed. I just, I envision Jesus appearing to be a ghost to these disciples because as he's walking through the raging storm with every plant of his foot on the surface of water, it stops and he gets closer and he gets closer and he gets in the boat and it just stops. There's great hope that one day, if the suffering doesn't stop here now, one day, will be with Jesus in heaven. So just as he did on that mountaintop, looking to heaven, forgetting about the kingdoms of earth and ruling the kingdoms of earth and looking to heaven, fixing his eyes on the Father, seeing the goal, seeing the plan, seeing his sacrifice accomplishing far more than he could ever accomplish if he just ruled as an earthly king. We too should fix our eyes on Jesus, fix our eyes to the kingdom of heaven, look to the things above so that we're not dismayed by the things here and now. The circumstances are messy. The storm's raging on. But we look to Jesus and we have peace and we have joy because there's the hope of eternity free from sin. Because there will come a day when He wipes every tear from our eye. When He removes every pain from our heart. When He restores us and gives us glorified bodies. And that we would rule and reign with Christ in heaven on the new earth for eternity. To the worship of our God and all of our God. That he could accomplish all these things, not in the way we thought he should, but in the way that only he could. Giving his perfect life, dying on the cross and raising from the dead, conquering death. Jesus affirms to his disciples, even in this moment, seeing him in the boat. He affirms to his disciples that he is enough. He has control over all things. He's the very present Lord that we see all throughout the Old Testament, and especially in the Psalms. This isn't on the screen, but Psalm 511. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Psalm 9, 9 through 10. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know his name Put their trust in it. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Psalm 18, 1 through 3. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my stronghold. I call on the name of the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. In a familiar passage, Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Death surrounds us. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The same is in Psalm 62, Psalm 89, Psalm 91, Psalm 143, Psalm 145, and a whole lot of other places. Do not be afraid, church. For the Lord is our refuge. The Lord is a secure hope. Not a wishful thinking, not a hope it works out in the end, a secure hope. Plant your feet on the rock, Jesus. Stand firm on the rock as we press forward. 
This isn't just to the church in general, the crossing church as a whole. We have many things to face. There's much to come. There's a lot of things ahead of us. And if you were like me, you frequently have times of doubt and confusion and exhaustion. God, are we even doing this right? God, why are you not saving more people? God, why did you call me to plant this church? Why did you call me to join these these Christians, these fellow believers to do what we're doing if you're not going to save people? Why is anyone coming against us? Why would anyone talk bad about us behind our back? Why would we have to fight the system so much? God, why is it not easier to see lost people saved? And we have much more ahead of us as God continues to establish His kingdom. How daunting it is to know that somewhere around 3.1 billion people in this world are still unreached. Not just lost, there's many more. 3.1 billion is a number I can't even figure out right now. 3.1 billion people are not even reached with the gospel. Those are, those are people groups that have never heard the name of Jesus that we hold so dearly. They have nowhere to put their hope. They have no solid rock to stand on. They have every reason to be afraid. And there are many here who have heard the name of Jesus and still refuse to believe. Or if they do, they believe enough to get what they want and not to worship Him as Lord. And so I ask you, is that you? Do you worship Jesus as Lord? If not, it's not too late. Turn to Him. Cry out to Him. Father, save me from myself. Save me from my false beliefs. Show me you are Lord. Let me see you are Lord. And there are many here in this room that would love to talk to you about that. You can find me in this time of worship. We're going to sing three songs. That's plenty of time to find somebody to have a conversation. But if it's not, we'll keep talking. We'll go to lunch. I'll bring you over to my house. We'll eat dinner. I'll do whatever it takes for you to know Jesus. I'll answer whatever questions I can. But there's nothing I can say to change you. In the end, you have to cry out to Jesus. Save me. Open my blind eyes. Open my ears to hear. And believers, there's still a lot of sanctifying to do as we doubt and struggle to see why we have to suffer. Why we're we're fighting against the winds and the waves. Know that the suffering is for your good and it's totally worth it. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Pursue Jesus. Because when we're in the place of obedience, there may be suffering. But when we are the people of God on the mission of God, we have nothing to be overwhelmed about, nothing to be anxious for, nothing to be afraid of, because Jesus is with us. And we can stand firm and know that in the end, no matter the circumstance, no matter the suffering, it'll be well worth it. Jesus is Lord. He has come to save. He is for us. He is with us. And so let us worship Him. Father, thank You so much. For your word. How simple a story, a story we tell to, to kindergartners, and a story that we've heard if we've been any time in the church, or even if we have been outside the church, we've heard this, this story. We've taken this myth that Jesus walked on the water. Thank you for showing us it's a reality. Help us to see more clearly this is real. That our God is able to calm the storm, to walk on water, to change everything, to open the eyes of the blind, both literally and spiritually. You open 
our eyes to see you, our Lord. Stir in us right now, God, this desire to worship you as that God here, present for us to worship, faithful always. Thank you for your word. Thank you for all that's to come. Let us endure, fixing our eyes on you, wading through the waters to see you glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.